Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler. Today is June 5th, 2020, and today I'm joined by Jay Michael of the Indie Star. Uh, if you've not read his work before, I'm, I'm not sure how you know me because Jay is one of the guys who got me into this. I, I love reading his stuff. He's definitely one of the best uh, Pacers reporters and NBA reporters out there. Um, Jay, how are you doing today, man? I'm good, man. Just um, gearing up for July 31st. It doesn't seem to be that far off to me. I'll be right back going basketball. Yeah, I know it. Uh, it it's kind of it's kind of wild. Uh, it feels really close, but kind of far at the same time. Uh, especially considering how much time we had off. I think it was only it, it. It ended up being only like three months, but it feels like almost a year since we've seen the Pacers play, man. Yeah, I can't even remember. You know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I can't remember. Sometimes I get asked about, hey, you know, about the way they were playing going into the break. I have to like pause and really think because I kind of forgot. I mean, I knew they were playing better and certain things, but like there's some technical stuff that like, yeah, I can't even remember all the different uh, tweaks and lineups that were put out there. Cause it's now just escaped my memory. We've been away from it for so long. So I had to go back and I'm, I'm still kind of refreshing my memory. So, you know, my recollections are, uh, are, are right, but yeah, it feels like we're going into another season. So it's kind yeah. of strange. Yeah. 100%. Um, so before we dive into uh, to, to, to the Pacers and the, the NBA coming back, um, obviously, you know, I, I reached out to you. We were talking before everything, uh, before George Floyd was murdered. Um, and uh, I, I reached out to you and you, you were willing to come on and, and talk with me about uh, some of the stuff going on in our country right now. Because um, I felt disingenuous not, not tackling it. I have a, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be part of a big enough platform in the cornrows to, to have a voice on it. And uh, uh, the, I, I think the first thing I just, uh, just want to ask to you is, is how are you, how are you personally um, dealing with everything and, and handling everything? I know it's got to be uh, insane. You know, I, uh, it, this is, this is my first time, uh, sorry to harp on myself, but I just, you know, this is my first time uh, being kind of of age to, to uh, to experience a, a moment like this in, in history, I know you know, obviously this kind of stuff has happened before, but this is the first time in my lifetime that uh, I'm 23. This is the first time that I've been old enough to to understand and and, and feel the significance of, of everything going on right now. Yeah, I was um, like I was, sure, without giving my age, I was old enough. <laughs> I was in, what was it? Rodney King riots were in 91, 92. No, no, see, I take that back. That was around O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. Somewhere around. Well, the Simpson trial was 94. I think Rodney King, yeah, was right before that, the riots. But that was regional. That was in L.A. You didn't see a, a bunch of stuff going on in other places uh, as a result. It was, it was slightly different. Um, uh, after that happened and then the, the verdict came down, that despite the police being on video, that you had all of that. Um, and, you know, you can really tell, I mean, I, I think for me, at least that's when I kind of started to recognize a lot of stuff um, from other people. Um, a lot of us, a lot of black people, we realize like there are people who are friends of ours, who we consider friends of ours are decent people who, eh, maybe not so much. Um, yeah. There's this, they're decent when we're around, but when we're not around, clearly they have, they probably say and do things that we probably would find objection. Um, and I, I always knew that growing up, but I mean, I guess it's almost just like a reminder. Um, and, and, you know, I, I get, 
you know, there, there's a rule of law and then there's, the, there's this whole thing where, okay, okay, if I go back to Rodney King, he was on a, he led the police on a high-speed chase. Um, he was being a complete ass, right? He deserved to get arrested. He maybe even deserved to get roughed up just a little bit. <laughs> I hate to say that, but he probably, does, look, I can understand a cop, once they get him, your adrenaline's flowing, you're chasing him down, he leads you on this high-speed chase, he gets out of the car, he starts wiggling his butt at you, you're mad. Okay, maybe you give him a, you know, maybe when you take him down, you drive him into the ground a little bit harder to put on those handcuffs. I get that. But to you get to the point where you all get around him and you tee off on him, like, um, you know, it's batting practice, to the point where you can, like, kill somebody. And okay, that's excessive. So you can say, well, it's a high-stress job and, you know, you don't know what it's like to be a cop. It's not a place for you to blow off steam because you're pissed off. That's just not what it is. It is just a different, we see things when people who think like me, and that's not only just black people, they're white folks who, who see it the same way. There is not just white people who think uh, uh, what the police did okay. There's other people who are not white who think it's okay too. But when I say we, I'm talking about people who think like me and who see things like me. So that's, that's a little bit of everybody, but I think more black people see it that way than, than white people percentage wise. But it's not a place for you to blow off steam because you're angry, because your wife pissed you off this morning before you went to work. Because, you know, if, if, you, if you've been to a nightclub, I haven't been to nightclubs in God knows how long, like 30 years, 20 years. But it's almost like the whole, what, what is a bouncer's job in a nightclub? You see something about to go down, right? You're supposed to diffuse a situation and take it outside and get it away from the people and stop it from ruining everyone's good time stop people from getting hurt. You're not supposed to get in there and get into a fight with the people who are getting into a fight. <laughs> like yeah. you're supposed to diffuse the, the whole idea is you're supposed to deescalate. I, I think the only way that, uh, that I can even sum it up, uh, just going off what you're saying. Uh, I think the biggest thing for me is just, uh, I've, I've totally come to that realization that there is this massive issue with, with the police force. And I, I don't think that's something that can be debated anymore. Um, one thing that I've really struggled with is uh, like you mentioned earlier about uh, having people that you, you, you considered friends before and, and you've kind of distanced yourself from them a little bit now. Um, I think the, the, the biggest thing that I struggle with is just the, the justification that, that gets put in for uh, some of the violent acts that have been, not some, uh, almost all the violent acts that have been happening. People are trying to justify it or say, well, you know, you, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. Well, I totally agree. It's, it's, it's a high stress environment. It's your job to, to not freak out and make things worse. I mean, I don't know if you saw the video of, uh, of what happened in Buffalo last night. Yeah, That was, I mean, just seeing some of the stuff that's been happening. I just, I can't stomach it. I can't stomach the, um, the fact that people are trying to justify it and, and the police, the police report said that he tripped and fell. Exactly. And it's like in no way, shape or form did that guy trip. I mean, he's tripped because you shoved him, but. The problem is though, every time, you know, for years, every time the police said something happened, everybody just assumed that it was true. Like there's such an honorable group of people that, you know, they're like George Washington. They cannot lie. Are you kidding me? Um, I look, I think part of the problem goes deeper. Like the, the police force isn't as intelligent as every and as decent as everybody makes them out to be. Um, we make it seem like they're these highly trained, skilled professionals, like they're all Navy SEALs or something. They're not. Okay. They, they hire sometimes in some places from the bottom of the barrel. 
And, you know, some guys who has these Call of Duty fantasies who ends up getting a job being a cop and decides that it's everything is a video game. Um, the other thing is, you know, I can't, man, it does a million stories. I remember when I was at USA Today, uh, I was there in 2000 to 2012. Um, we had a, a gym inside the facility, really nice gym too. And there's a girl who worked as an athletic trainer there who I became really good friends with. And we all, she and I used to hang out and some other people who worked there because we're on the same age range, but a happy hour. She said to me one day, she says, hey, can you come with me to happy hour somewhere in Maryland? And I was like, uh, uh, next week, I'm like, why do we want to go way out there to go to happy hour? She says, well, my ex, and she tells me it's not like Jim or something. He's going to be in town and he wants uh, me to meet him. I said, why don't you just go meet him? What the heck do you need me for? Well, um, well, it's kind of far out. And, um, you know, remember the guy I told you that broke my jaw uh, when I was in high school? Yeah, well, that was him. I said, okay, so why would you want to go to happy hour with him? She said, well, he just got a job as um, highway patrol uh, in Maryland. And uh, I was like, what? I was like, hold it. He broke your jaw. I said, this, wasn't, this was not an accident, correct? She's like, no, he beat me up. But he got a badge as highway patrol. Wow. And part of the reason I got really angry, I used to get angry with her a lot. I never forget. She was the sweetest person in the world. But she would tell me, she said, um, I said, well, what did, the, what did the police do when you, you know, reported him for breaking your jaw? She said, I was afraid to report him. I didn't report him. So because she didn't report him, he didn't have anything on his record. He got a badge. Now, if he's going to break her jaw and she's the sweetest, little, prettiest little girl you ever see, what would he do to me if he pulled me over and he got pissed off? Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. uh, or, or, I mean, what would he do? To, like, that, that's the kind of person or people that are getting badges. And the psychological testing that they claim they use just doesn't work. I just think it's the, the way we, we identify and hire people that are, 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 are appropriate for this responsibility. We just don't do it right. It's like, it's like if you hired, uh, what do you call that, uh, daycare center providers. You can't just hire anybody to do that. Oh, yeah. Definitely That's not. how your children end up abused and molested and they allow other people in the building who shouldn't be there, who end up doing those sorts of things. There's certain jobs where the standard, I don't care about where your job is stressful. You signed up for that job. I don't care that, uh, uh, you know, well, you don't know what it's like. You know what? If you can't handle that, keep your ass home, go work at Wendy's or go uh, shine some shoes down at the train station. You do not deserve that responsibility of protecting and serving. The first, you talk about protect and serve, and the only people they protect and serve, for the most part, unfortunately, are each other. And you can't, you know, and there's always been this kind of conflict between black communities and police forces. And I think what people who talk about this don't understand, especially white people, like, how could the police be this bad? Think about what it's like in some of these small podunk towns, what justice is like, right? I'm from that kind of place in Louisiana. I live between four bayous. I had an uncle who was tied up to a tree and beaten to death. Well, he was beaten mostly to death. And then he was left for dead and died in the sun. He was, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? He kind of, um, whatever you call it, when you die from just like um, uh, exhaustion or whatever. And plus he was beaten up. And witnesses said it was some white men who did it. It was in Mississippi. To this day, nobody knows what happened. What was the reason for it? Um, cops didn't really break their necks to do anything about it. Um, you know, if he wasn't a, 
a 60 something year old black man in Mississippi in a small town, if he looked, if he was a 60 something year old white man, would he have been treated differently? Probably. Um, but you got to look at what people have to understand when they say history doesn't matter. And this, this is what drives me craziest about the average white person, not every person. So make sure anybody's listening who says, oh, you're not talking about me. I'm not talking about every person. I'm talking about this is kind of a, um, what most of the sentiment is, not that they think, well, what does, what does, you know, what happened X number of years ago matter today? Well, the police forces used to be hired uh, staffed by the white citizens councils back in the day. White citizen council was just another way for KKK. The concerned white citizens council. So, and it's, it's been passed through generations. So you're talking about generations of families that have this sort of mentality that pass down, this is the way you do it. This is, that's why you see so many people are shocked that they find out so many people with clan ties over the years have been working in police forces. Well, that's, that, that was, they actually worked in conjunction with each other. I mean, if the police actually did their job in the, in the 60s or the 50s and 60s and even before that, we wouldn't have had some of the tragedies, some mega Evers is killing. We wouldn't have had any of that. Why, why, why does Byron Della Beckwith doesn't go to jail for that like forever? Because the police weren't really investigating. Why? Because they were in cahoots with the people that were committing the murder. So when you say the past doesn't matter, it does. The problem is 99% of people don't know it. And because you don't know it, you're operating from a place of ignorance and you're talking to those of us who do know it. And that's where a lot of the kind of issues and the conflict starts because we're coming from different places. We're coming from absolutely different places on this. I've said to people, and you know, there's actually black people who are so damn stupid, like Wendy Williams, a talk show host, who absolutely annoys me, says, oh, why do we have historically black colleges and universities that's, that's segregationist. Well, guess why? Because we weren't able to go to your goddamn schools and we had to create our own. That's why they're historically black colleges. We didn't say, oh, we don't want to go to these schools that you go to and your children go to. We tried to go. You didn't allow us to go. Therefore, you have historically black colleges. Their very existence is because of you. If you don't like it, if you don't like these things like black entertainment television, guess why we have it? Because MTV had a policy when music television came to fruition in like the early 80s that they wouldn't play black people's videos. So if you don't like it, look at why it came into existence. You don't want to talk about that, though. So you want us and people who have started those businesses things that are supposed to be a good thing, right? Why don't you start your own stuff? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So you want, after we do that and we start our own stuff, now you want us to tear it down because it offends your sensibilities. Kiss my ass. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to disagree with that at all, man. Um, it's it's actually, I mean, not funny, but ironically speaking, uh, I grew up in kind of a, a small town in, in Ohio, a uh, suburb of, of Cleveland, and so I didn't, I mean, I, I went to a mostly progressive school, so I learned about some stuff. But uh, it wasn't until I got to college, I went to Michigan State for my first couple of years, and I took a couple of, uh, of African-American history courses and um, you know, really got to, to understand some of the things that I didn't know, that I didn't learn about. Like, I, I mean, obviously, I learned more than just, oh, you know, the uh, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, the Civil War ended slavery. Like, you know, that's, that's, that's false. That's not true. So much happens after that. Um, that, that just gets thrown out the window. Um, 
I mean, people don't talk about Jim Crow. People don't talk about um, a- anything like that. I mean, I think one of the most um, incredibly disheartening, difficult things for me to learn about was Black Wall Street. I think that's one of the best examples of the issues that we've we've really had in, in our country for the, its existence was Black Wall Street. And if, uh, if, if anyone listening isn't familiar with that, I mean, it was a very, very affluent black community, I believe in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, that was, there was, there was an incident that went down that did obviously not warrant what happens. Um, and, uh, it, it was bombed and totally just destroyed. And that's just a microcosm of, of, of all the things that have been happening, um, for, for hundreds of years and is, is boiling into today. You know, um, I, I think my, the thing that I struggle with, with, with people who I used to consider friends or um, to people who I grew up with or people who I, who I live nearby um, or just people on the internet. I get into heated crap on Twitter all the time. I'm trying to get better at that, but it's, it's hard with the, with the ignorance sometimes. But um, I think there's just a, a willful ignorance sometimes, you know, I think that people are very willing to just ignore things and say, well, that's not me. That's not how things are uh, this or that. And, um, that's just not true. I mean, there, there are little things that people do every single day that, that contribute to systemic racism. Um, that maybe I think one of the best ways to look at it is like, look at it like it's a pyramid, like the top is the very worst stuff. You know, you have your brutality, violence, all the things up here, but all the things that happen and compile at the bottom, it builds up to that. And if, uh, I think a lot of people just negate that. Yeah. And, I think one of the, the the foundation of what people say, like I've I've always gotten a kick out of when people throw around the word racist, and I, I get on black people about it too. So if anybody anybody white listening who thinks I'm just you know complaining about white people, no, I'm not, because I get on black people too when we label something racist that's not racist, right? That it's just that there are time there's some stuff that isn't racist, but it may seem that way, but sometimes it's not that way. Um, I think you got to give certain people the benefit of the doubt. I'm not about, I'm not part of the cancel culture that believes just because you say something that like, say for instance, on the radio that seemed kind of insensitive or on the air that, Oh, we got to get rid of them. I'm not part of that. So I'm not one of those people. What I do think is relevant though, is you got to look at your history. Now, if you like Grant Napier, the guy who uh, was the analyst for the Sacramento Kings, he needed his ass fired. Oh yeah. That was, um, yeah. well, he, he needed he needed to be fired because you know I said on Twitter you know back in years ago when he said how could Donald Sterling be racist he hired Elgin Baylor there's no way a grown man should actually have to be have it explained to him a grown man who's traveled the world like he has who's covering mostly black players and black people in the league if you're that stupid you shouldn't have that job okay and if people don't understand why that is just because somebody hired someone black does not make them, uh, they're absolved of being a bigot. Or just because you have a friend that you call black, does it make you absolved of being a bigot? Um, just because you're in proximity to people who are black, or you listen to Prince, and you listen to every sort of rap musician, does it mean because you like that, you can't be a bigot? And I think people conflate all of those things. So it always make, amuses me. The thing that amuses black people and all, every black person is when a white person says, a grown up, 
I've never, I've never seen racism in my life. I've never encountered racism. Okay, you're foolish. Yeah, okay, right. That means you don't know what it is or you are so in the clouds or in the dark. You're too stupid for words. Yes, you have. If you lived here, you have. Don't say that. I've never seen it. Don't ever say that because that's a lie. That's either you're lying or you're stupid. Those are the only two answers. So that's what you're telling me. The other thing is, don't tell me you don't see color. That's insults my intelligence. Yes, you do. And it doesn't, you know, I've had, to, I've had to give certain white people license when they're trying to describe someone. And I was like, oh, you mean the black guy? Yeah, well, just say the black dude. There's, there's only one black guy over there and there's a bunch of white people. It's okay if you expl- describe him as a black guy. I know you think because if you describe him as a black guy, that somehow I'm going to get offended. No. See, it's that kind of stuff, basic stuff, where it's like, dude, that, okay, he's, there's, there's no, he's not like the six foot eight guy, the six foot 10 guy, or the guy who's five foot one standing over there. It's the only black person over there. It would make it, <laughs> it would make it so much easier. But people walk on eggshells so much, it shows you how they don't know what's racist versus what's not. Saying that is not racist. People don't know what the word means. Racist means you think you're superior to someone because of who you are by birth racially. The word ist means that, you know, it's like scientists, you know, psychologists. It's a specialist. You think your race is special. That's what racist is. Okay. It's not because you identify that guy standing over there in a group of white people is he's that the yeah, black guy standing up. That's not racist. Like <laughs> when people are so, it's funny, man, I, I get a kick out of seeing how people will find, uh, even stuff, if you go on YouTube and watch like stand-up comedians and like Chris Rock or somebody like Dave Chappelle making fun of black people. And we, and, and the funny thing is the kind of things they say are the things that we have said internally growing up all the time. Uh, and they're, they're wild by that. But then when those same guys say stuff about white people, they get butthurt about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So you see, you, you, so you, you're being such a snowflake. Is that we actually find that funny? We find all of that funny. And I, I just see some people who get all butthurt about the jokes they make about white folks. That's that's that's. Uh, but it, it's it's it. Look. So I. So anyway, getting back to my point, it's like you got to understand what it means, what racist means, and that somehow because you know someone black or listen to black music doesn't mean you're not racist. Have you ever seen the movie Do the Right Thing? No, it's on my watch list, though. I love Spike Lee's stuff. Like, He Got Game is one of my favorite movies of all time. But uh, Do the Right Thing, I'm trying to get around to. There's a part in Do the Right Thing where, you know, the, the, the guy, um, I think it's John Turturro, who's the racist dude that works at the pizza shop with him, he keeps dropping M-bombs left and right mm-hmm. to, like, to uh, Spike's character is Mookie, I think. And he, said, he says, man, he says, he says, why do you always use that? And dude says, so Spike says, character says to him, who's your favorite um, artist? He says, Prince. Who's your favorite comedian? Eddie Murphy. Who's your favorite uh, baseball player? Kirby Puckett. He's like, so why do you always use that? But those are your favorite people. Well, they're different. You know, they're they're not like (laughs) N-words. Like... But but the whole point of that scene was to show there are people who believe they're not racist because they like those people on TV that they see. 
Because Miles Turner is your favorite player doesn't mean you're not racist. Sorry, people. Hate to break it to you. Not true. Not true. That has that one has nothing to do with the other. Um, forget Miles Turner. How do you treat black people at large? And and just because, by the way, you know Bradley Beal. I saw him address this on social media recently that people were giving him grief that because he's got a million dollars or millions of dollars that he can't possibly understand what his whole point was. I didn't grow up rich. <laughs> I, I didn't grow up rich at all. You act like because now that I have money, I shouldn't say anything or I can't say anything. That's not true. Those are my experiences. And so, you know, it's just that the people who are the less, the least educated, the least, um, um, uh, least educated, actually really historically just have no grasp of what history is. They can't have a discussion with history with me about real history. They just can't, but they'll swear. It's, it's like the people who claim first amendment constitution, but they're fine with suppressing po- protesters. Like yeah. you, can't, you can't claim America, America, this country's the greatest, but you only want opinions and views voice that you agree with but you claim to know the constitution. Oh, you can't shut down. The governor can't shut down these businesses because it's against our freedoms. Are you kidding? Do you understand the law? <laughs> do you, do yeah. you really? It's, it's the classic case of the loudest people say the most um, erroneous things. And it's kind of, and you know, and you know, let's face it. We don't have a media. We don't have media in this country now. Um, well, now you're starting to see some of them doing their jobs, but for the longest time, um, we, you know, and it's partly on the media too, just chasing clickbait and posting stories and writing stuff that people say that we know to be false. We know it's factually incorrect, but we post it because, well, you know, the truth is it's going to get traffic and people are going to, it's going to be debated and talking. No, you should be, your job is to tell the truth. And so when I'm doing my job, doing something as insignificant as basketball, if I hear a player, the difference is if I hear a player or a coach or somebody say something to the media session, the group, that I know is untrue, I will go to that coach or that player or whomever and pull them on the side. like, you said X, Y, and Z, yeah. But I know, you know, based on some previous reporting I had or some information that contradicts what, what you just said, I need you to explain. What do you mean? Am I missing something? And I make them explain it. That's what the media's job is. And we generally don't do that. So for all of these years leading up to this point that we're in right now, we also been giving people misinformation, which hasn't helped. We just feed conspiracy theories and try to get clicks and all this other nonsense. And uh, I think that's kind of fed into it as well. But um, we have a willful ignorance in this country uh, and, some people are just born stupid. Other people just choose not to find the answers because they, they know they're not going to like what they see. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And um, just going back to, to, to your point you're making with Bradley Beal. Um, I think two things that really come to mind for me that have been pertinent uh, over the past month is a, um, the stuff that happened with, with, uh, with Drew Brees yesterday and Laura Ingram going on and going off about that. Somebody went on Twitter and pulls the clip of her telling LeBron and Katie to shut up and dribble. And then it's a very converse statement when it comes to what Drew Brees says, um, which, of course, you know, I mean, that's just a very, uh, very clear that there's a double standard there and some yeah. very racist issues there, without a doubt. And then also looking at um, the protests that happened in Michigan um, during the when COVID started up, 
Um, and the, the people who went out there with, with guns to the, to the state house, bazookas to, to, to the subway, and um, they were being handled in a completely different way than, than nonviolent protesters. And I just think that I, speaking to the willful ignorance, that's, that's where it comes in. I think people are like, they look at the, the, the protesters in Michigan, they're like, oh, well, they're just, they're, they're executing their second amendment and first amendment rights to right to bear arms and right to speak up. And it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's very clear that there's double standards. I, I wish like hell, and I've said this to friends of mine, I says, all of you need to get guns legally and we should show up somewhere. All these black folks show up. Would you get, if, if those are a bunch of black people showing up, would you feel as comfortable with them with a bunch of guns? If they were all legal guns. Oh, and they're legal gun owners. No, you wouldn't. You know how I know? Because when the Black Panthers did it, you lost your minds. The Black Panthers legally owned weapons, walked out on the streets with weapons because obviously they had a different point of view in terms of self-defense. If you touch me, if you try to assault me with a water hose or a nightstick, they were going to shoot you, cop or not. And did America have a problem with that? Of course. If we did that right now, would they have a problem? Yeah. And I, t- I tell people all the time, I own four guns legally. I have concealed carry permits. Now, I'm not walking around. <clears throat> I'm not going to games with pistols on me and stuff like that. But part of the reason is I grew up in Louisiana and um, guns were normal to me because we live, you could have snakes and alligators in your backyard. Man, I'm glad I live in the Midwest. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, there's all kinds of wildlife you had to be worried about. Um, So every, when I say everybody in my neighborhood had a gun, everybody, there was no gun violence though. People weren't people weren't bringing carrying carrying guns to to intimidate other people. When, and they were trust me, there was a share of fights too. I never saw anybody bring out a gun in a fight. I don't think anybody ever pulled out a knife. And there were a lot of fights because I grew up in a neighborhood where, um, you know, if you I don't know if you ever seen the movie Boys in the Hood. Yeah, where, yeah, it's a great movie. Where Furious, Larry Fishburne's character takes mm-hmm. him to a a neighborhood about gentrification and he talks about why do you see liquor stores on every corner well in my neighborhood and I grew up lower middle class we weren't poor my parents were never on public assistance everybody in my family always worked Um, but there were people obviously around us who probably were but I don't think there were many but trust me it wasn't an affluent place not even it wasn't a nice place at all but if you walk out of my front door and went to the right, there's a place called Glorious that was about maybe uh, a two-minute walk. It was a bar road. If you walk to the left and you took a five-minute walk, there's a place called the Zodiac Lounge. That was a bar. If you went another five minutes from the Zodiac Lounge up into an area they called Sarge's Center, it was owned by a guy they called Sarge, and it was a bunch of low-income housing, and there was a huge, rickety-looking bar road. And it was called, and that was called Sarge's. So within walking distance, oh, I left one other place out. And if you walk beyond the first place, Glorious, to the right, if you walked another 10 minutes, there's a place called, um, uh, uh, I think it was called Virus. It was Virus, yeah. And so within reasonable walking distance, you have four bars and they were always packed, especially every weekend all the time. They kept bar rooms. There was not a white neighborhood that I ever went into that ever had zoning approved where you could open bar rooms right in, the, right in the middle of these neighborhoods of people's homes. We had four. Damn. Four. 
So, of course, they stayed drunk. Uh, there, there had to be, and by the way, there, I don't think anybody in that neighborhood ever got a DUI. There were people driving drunk, and my father was one of them, unfortunately, driving drunk repeatedly because the tow truck companies made some good money because we didn't have, we were outside city limits, so we had to dispose of our own waste, and we had these huge ditches. And so people driving drunk with these huge trenches and these ditches on the side of the road, cars kept going off the road because people were drunk. Mm-hmm. So on any given Saturday night, you could be driving home, we could be driving home for the city, and you'll see seven, seven cars that went in the ditches because people were driving, driving drunk. Damn. And so there were kids out there. And I was a child. I, I remember one time somebody asking me to go get my, my father because he was supposed to be home from work. And he, they said, yeah, he probably stopped at the Zodiac Lounge. I was a child. I was able to walk in the Zodiac Lounge and sit down. I was offered a drink and I don't mean soda. Hey, you want a beer? Hey, you want to try a beer? So that's the kind of stuff I grew up around and they had. And so you wonder why those people stay in the situation they are. I'm waiting to see a white neighborhood that has four bars basically in it. And if you walked, when I said you walk this one, you walk the right, when you go right outside of my house, instead of going curving around to go to this one bar if you go straight probably another 200 yards it's almost like a dividing line you walk over it there's a baptist church nice cute little baptist church and there's a white neighborhood and um you don't see that over there and oh by the way our roads growing up i didn't have cable tv growing up because we, we were outside city limits so i always had just the basic uh, three, three or four primary channels. That's it. I didn't. I would hear my friends talk about watching HBO. What is that? I never saw that growing up. Um, we had a gravel road, so um, I had a lot of scars and cuts from falling riding my bike on gravel road. If you ride, go on the street, our main street. When you get to that nice neighborhood, not nicer. It wasn't a nice white neighborhood. It was just kind of like a, a middle class neighborhood. With, you know, look, it was clean. It was, it was decent looking. When you get up. So when you get to that neighborhood, guess what happens to the road? It's paved all the way through. But when you get to our side, it's nothing but rocks and gravel. So, and by the way, they also, they had cable. They had the lines put in for cable. So that's, so when we're talking about systemic, that's what it is. And I was talking to a guy I grew up with who I totally forgot. He friended me on Facebook and I was like, man, I recognize that name, but where do I know him from? I haven't seen him in years. Um, and this kid named Terry. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember him. I went to the boys club with him. And he and I were chatting. And he said, yeah, I just did uh, I just did 20 slash 5. And I said, what? He just got out of jail for doing uh, uh, 20, 20 years and five months in jail. Um, a lot of them ended up doing stuff like that. Because, that. I mean, I didn't ask him all the details on how he ended up there. Um, but there truly was, I, I get it. There was truly no opportunity there for him. I think the difference between me and the difference between guys like him, and there are a lot of them, uh, was that um, I knew it was bullshit. And uh, I used to go visit my sister during the summer. I had an older sister who lived right outside Washington, D.C. And so I would spend every summer with her. And she used to take me to celebrity golf tournaments. That's where I first met Bill Russell when I was a child. I had dinner with Bill Russell. I was probably about 10 years old. Um, she, she worked, um, I can't say what her job was, but it was a, a secret job in the government. 
And, and so I was around, you know, our, our neighbors were congressmen and uh, senators and uh, diplomats and that kind of thing. So that's where I would spend my summers. So I was able to see different places, different things. I knew there was so much more out there than what I was seeing in this little town in Louisiana. And those other kids never got out, uh, never got to see any, anything else. And they had no imagination. They just accepted. And I'm going to tell you too, our school sucked. Um, I had a 1.9 GPA when I graduated high school, even though I knew I was better than that. And my, I had certain teachers that knew I was better than that. But I had guidance counselors who told me, um, hey, what do you, you know, tell them what you want to do. And they would tell you, uh, well, you should just go in the military. They used to direct all black children to the military. And all black children and all poor white children. They automatically told you you had no chance at doing anything but going to the military. And so they really became a feeder system. And that's why, they, that's why all of my relatives, so when I history, you mentioned Drew Brees about his grandfather in the military. Man, I think half the damn kids in that town that I'm from went to the military and fought in wars. So, you, you know, respect your grandfather for doing what he did, but you're not special that you have people in your family go to the military. I have like two dozen people in my family who went to the military. Okay, and who went to war zones. So that doesn't make you special. It, that, that's the other thing that drives me crazy. White people who think because they went to the military, somebody in their family went to the military, that makes them special. And what they say is gospel, go to hell. They said nothing but poor kids and kids who are from the lower economic chain to those places. So for my town, if you didn't go to the military, they said, well, you really had no chance. And I would tell the teachers at F you. So I went to college. I got in. I graduated top 5% of my class. And when I went back home for a, um, a um, what do you call it? A, what do you call a it? reunion? Reunion. I met, I saw some people there, and they were shocked. Like, man, you really turned. I was like, I said, no, you guys didn't know. I knew. Because I was a cocky little you-know-what. Because I'd never let, I would sit in people's faces and tell them straight up, like, no, you know, you, you let, you, know, you can break this guy down, those people down, those that said, that's not going to happen with me. You're not going to tell me anything. And, you know, I came from a two-parent home where everybody in my family went to college. All of, I have four sisters. Uh, all four sisters went to college, uh, graduated, uh, a couple with master's, um, and and graduated top percent of their classes. Uh, my brother didn't finish a four-year college. He's passed away, but he went to become a diesel mechanic and he was certified diesel engine mechanic because he loved working on cars. Uh, and so he was a, a top flight guy in that, in that field of working on diesel engines. So, and he worked, um, he worked himself to, to death, literally. So that's where we came from. And so it was kind of funny. I always thought that white people in Louisiana had trouble kind of, especially my teachers relating to me because they were used to telling you what you couldn't do. And I was like, whatever. And so I, that's part of the component too, you know, bad education, bad school systems, teachers that don't know how to deal with black students and basically tell you, and a lot of these kids accepted that they had no chance and they necessarily didn't have somebody that told them they can do something or they didn't have the, the, the personality, the demeanor. I had, I always had my chest poked out and my shoulders back. I was, I was defiant uh, to a T and, you know, um, it, what, one other thing too, sorry to go long on this, but no, you're good. I, was, I was reading a story on Malcolm Brogdon. I just did a story on Malcolm Brogdon and he was talking about how he went to um, school when he went to a private school in Atlanta and how he he noticed that he was always in detention 
along with a couple other black kids that were in private school. And that made me laugh because that happened to me. Uh, my mom, in second grade, she took me out of the public school, put me in Our Lady of Lourdes because I grew up Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, white people, black people are Catholics, especially in Louisiana. I hate to break it to you. Yes, if you didn't know black people were Catholics, that, 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 that's, yeah, yeah, we're Catholics. And by the way, my mom is a dark-skinned black woman. Her sister, who I've showed uh, pictures to, my, my, my Aunt Shirley, who's now passed away, uh, who they look exactly like in the face. Her sister is white skin. And, and, and I, when I showed pictures of them and I, some white friends saw this, says, your aunt is white? I was like, no, she's black. There's a lot of black people who are very fair skinned. My neighbors, black people, all very fair skinned. They're closer to your complexion mark than mine by far. And they could pass. Some of them have light eyes. Um, my, my, great-grand, my grandfather, my great grandfather had, uh, had hazel eyes or green eye, excuse me. I can't remember. They had a nickname for him too that was based on it. And he was very fair skinned. Um, so our our genes and the variations are so great. It's not just, you gotta be like Victor Oladipo black in order to be black, or you have to be a, a, a fair skin like Brogdon. There's so many other variations, not only between, but darker than Victor and lighter than Malcolm. There's that, and so th- that's how vast, I always get a kick out of when I, I show people that, how they don't realize my aunt and my mom had the same parents. So that's how it is. So that, that actually, um, I always find it kind of funny. So I, I run into that too. When I tell people we, we grew every and everybody in my neighborhood, was, all the black folks were Catholic on, on the side of the tracks that we were on. Um, so anyway, she put me in a Catholic school and I was only one of three kids in the entire school. It was K through eight, only three black children. I got messed with every day. And the only reason why it was me all the time rather than the other two was the other guy was in seventh or eighth grade. He was six foot three in seventh, eighth grade, about 300 pounds and a football player. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is he was a really soft dude. He was not a fighter, but people were obviously there. They're not going to go pick on him. Yeah. And the other black kid was his sister, Salika, who is now a, uh, uh, a well-renowned professor in, in Wisconsin. Um, She's, um, uh, and so it was in the three of us were the three smartest kids in home school. Um, the brother, Andrew became an engineer. Salika became, a um, a, uh, she got a master's in history. She, she's written a few books. Uh, pretty fan. She's a pretty fascinating person too. Uh, and there was me who was, I was in third, second and third grade. Um, we would have science competitions and math competitions. I'd, I'd beat every, I'd finish first all the time. And the teachers never could figure out why a kid who was clearly smarter than everybody always got into trouble. Well, it was pretty simple. Um, as I said, they wouldn't mess with Andrew for obvious reasons. Um, so these little racist bastards, um, with every time they want to make a, a racist joke, they would do it to me. Every time they felt like dropping an bomb, they would do it around me. And I would kick your ass. I'm, I'm not turning you out the cheek. You know, I, I, when I see some of these videos on the internet with some of these crazy white people yelling at folks, I wish somebody would do that to me. I've told people at my job, I'll, I will risk losing my job. I wish like hell somebody would come to me. I'd knock your block off, you know. And so that's what basically would happen. And so my teachers would be like, well, you know, you know, you can't, you can't do that. You just, words don't hurt. You got to turn the other cheek. 
this is what white teachers who had no idea how to deal with black kids behaved. They told you it was, it was basically, you know, uh, nothing. You turn another cheek. But you got to understand, I was being inundated with this every single day. Um, I was, uh, so I was having lunch in the cafeteria, minding my business. Kid comes up to me and said, hey, kid, do you like black eyed peas? Because that's what I was eating. I was like, yeah. And he goes, <laughs> figures. <laughs> and all these kids start laughing. Back in the day, we had these little uh, fiberglass trays. I don't know what they have in school to eat off now, but they were really heavy, uh, really thick. I think they uh, kind of bluish green. They must have weighed like 10 pounds. And these two kids who did it were eighth graders. I took my tray, picked it up, and slammed it sideways into his face and knocked his teeth out, and then I beat the hell out of the other guy. I was third grade. Of course, I got in trouble. I think I had detention for like a month. <laughs> but if you ask people there, I was violent. And see, this is how young black boys get branded as violent. I wasn't violent. I never instigated a fight with anybody. I never bullied anybody. I never went and picked on it. If you were minding your business, I left you alone. And so this is how I get in fights all the time. Then I had another guy who I thought was a friend who started making fun of me in front of his white friends saying, calling me chocolate fudge on a stick, which, you know, now sounds stupid. But I was in like third grade, second, third grade. And he was a friend of mine. His sister was friends with my sister. I beat the hell out of him. I beat the living sin out of him. He, I beat him up so bad he missed school for a week. Um, and once again, uh, his sister and my sister stopped being friends over it. And I made no apologize, apologies for it. And I was like, no, I said, like, I had to draw my line in the sand. Cause if I did not do that, I was going to catch hell every single day from everybody. It's, it's the classic case. You got to kick the biggest dog in the yard's ass and then everybody else falls in line. But I was the violent person. I was the person everybody was afraid of. No, I just didn't take any shit. <laughs> Sorry. That's just how it is. And I make no apologies for that. So but anyway, that's kind of how some of these kids, though, get branded coming up and they kind of stay in that mode and they never kind of get out of it. They, they keep being defined as violent, thuggish and all of that other stuff. And, you know, they kind of go off. I knew the difference that I was only doing that in certain situations. You had to trigger me to do that. And so but that's what kind of the experience is. And I think I, t I tweeted yesterday about how. I was chased when I was 12, 13 years old by a man. I was visiting my sister in McLean, Virginia, a very affluent area, the place I told you where the senators and play, stuff live, dribbling my basketball to go to a park during the middle of the day, minding my business, said, I, I, are you lost? Uh, I, don't, I don't see black kids, little black kids around here. You must be lost. And he chased me, minding my business, chased me. Um, who knows what he was going to do with me? Um, he could have killed me, abducted me, done whatever. So when I see these kind of stuff happening to people and they say, well, you know, who's the, the radio guy in uh, Indy that said, well, you must've been doing something for this stuff to happen. Joe, uh, Joe idiot. Um, play for the Colts. Uh, oh he, yeah. I can't, I can't remember his last name, but yeah, he was an offensive lineman. Yeah. He, he constantly uses this logic that, well, you must've been doing something. No, I was dribbling my basketball to the court where I lived and got chased and, you could say, well, other kids have gotten chased, but have you gotten chased because you're white? I got chased only because I was black. He thought I didn't belong there. I mean, I could go on and on about 
experiences where I got pulled over by police walking my dog in my neighborhood in Orlando, Florida, in College Park, which is right off downtown, which is a very nice neighborhood. Walking my dog one o'clock in the morning, because you know what I do for a living? I'm up late at night. I get home late. Time to walk my dog. Uh, I just had foot knee surgery. My knee was swollen. I couldn't tighten my shoes. So my shoes were untied because I couldn't tighten my shoe all the way. And I'm walking with a noticeable limp, walking my dog at like 1 a.m. I get pulled over by the cops. Then like 10 other cop cars show up, a big argument breaks out. And the guy says, well, what, you should maybe walk your dog at another time. I was like, you kiss my ass. This is my neighborhood. I pay taxes. This is my house. Why don't, I said, why don't you, if you're still such a concern to you about what time I walk my dog, why don't you come walk my dog for me? It's like, what are you talking about? I'm walking my dog. Well, we had a robbery recently. I don't care. Look at me. I have my shoe untied. Where am I going to run? I have a, a black lab with me. Where am I going to run? I can't walk straight because of my knee surgery. What am, what am I going to rob on foot? Just from a common sense perspective, you should know that's stupid. But physically, look at me. My shoes are untied. Man, a whole, they sent the black officer over to kind of talk me down to the ledge. And then I went off on her because she was trying to make excuses for it. And I was like, no, this is like the fifth. That was like the fourth or fifth time I got stopped in my own neighborhood walking because it was a nice neighborhood. And that's where I lived. I was like, I don't have, they said, well, where's your ID? I was like, it's one o'clock in the morning. You think I'm going to have a wallet on me while I'm walking around my neighborhood? No, I'm walking my dog, taking them to use the bathroom. I don't, I mean, what, that, that, see, it's that kind of stuff. And, and that, that wasn't the first time. A big argument erupts. He calls me a liar. He tells me, um, he asks me my name. I give him my name. He puts it in the system because he asked me if I had any uh, warrant, you know, any warrants or charges. I says, no. He asked me my name. I give him my name. And I knew he was going to screw up because he puts my name in the system. And it says, he says, you're lying. You do have warrants. I says, no, I don't. And he starts yelling at me in front of the other cops. He says, we're going to take care of this right now. And I was like, really? I says, how did you spell my name? And he told me how he spelled it. I says, no, that's not how you spell it. This is how you spell it. And they go and put it in the system and see my, my, where I, my address and where I live and my record's clean. I said, see, you didn't do, and I use so many, I have never cussed out someone in authority is bad. I called him so many MFs that you cannot even imagine. But I was like, you called me a liar and this, that, and the other, and that you were going to get me. But you didn't do your job precisely because I'd already experienced that with police. They mistook me. It was somebody else who had my same name, but they spelled it slightly differently. And they thought I was somebody who actually was a criminal. And, but he, he was, and so we got into this argument. And look, in hindsight, I'm surprised I didn't get shot or tased. <laughs> But I, I, at that point, I was so fed up because like, it was like the fourth, fifth, sixth time that that had happened. And in the previous time, I had a cop say that, boy, we're going to get you because they wanted to search my car and I wouldn't let them search my car. And they said, and I was pulling out of a gas station and they said, well, uh, you didn't have your lights on. You know, sometimes you're in the gas station, your lights are off, you pull off mm -hmm. and you initially have your lights on, you turn them on. It was like, took like two seconds and they pulled me over for that, which was nonsense. And then said that they, one of them started to look in the back seat of my car because the windows are down. And I said, get out of my, my car. He says, you mind your business? No, no, you cannot search my car. I didn't give you authorization. They said, well, can we search your car? I says, absolutely not. Well, you must have some. I said, I don't trust that one of them was going to throw some drugs in the back. I didn't. Because I'm talking to one cop up here. There's another cop behind me looking, trying to look through my window. I would not trust that he wouldn't. I said, stay out of my car. 
I put the windows up and I said, you cannot search. If you want to go get a warrant to search my car because you think you have probable cause, I got all night. Go right ahead. But you do not have a right to search my car unless I authorize you to do so. And, and, I, and I read their badges and called them by name. And I said, I dare you to do it. I dare you. And they backed off. And wow. so, and I've never, I don't have a criminal record. So I, I can say, I never thought what I did, what I went through was that big of a deal. But I realized looking back, when you see all these things that are happening today, I, there are people who had it far worse than me. And to me, these were just like, and, and in all of these incidents to, to law enforcement or to whomever, I never brought up race. I never said, you pulled me over because I'm black. I said, why did you pull me over? Really? Is that the only reason? I will ask you questions, but I won't give you, I won't give you that. It's like, so explain to me, explain to me. And, and he couldn't explain to me. Why would you pull me? Okay, it was for the lights. Really? There are people driving by right now uh, 50 miles an hour over the speed limit, and you're not pulling them over. You pulled me over for no reason that you thought I might have drugs on me. That's it. It was just a crapshoot. And that was, the, that was the biggest profiling incident I'd ever encountered at that time. And that's, you know, you know, that's why people get mad and pissed off. So there's, there's a whole lot of layers, a whole lot of layers, Mark, to all of what we see that, that's going on. And, um, you know, it's crazy. I just can't wait for it to end. And I just hope the virus doesn't get worse as a result of it, too, because I'm kind of worried about that part. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, thank you so much for sharing all that. I think uh, – it's uh, I was thinking automatically when, when listening, um, I know that there are people who are going to be, uh, people, people get pissed about anything, you know? I mean, you know that you're, it only took me 23 years to find that out. Um, but I think that's the problem innately. I mean, listening to you talking, I mean, uh, like it, it's just stuff that if you were white, you don't have to go through it. You know, that's not like, I, I just know, I know that from growing up in my own life, you know? when I was going to high school, yeah, I got, I got picked on. I, I got into fights and stuff, but not, not because of the color of my skin or not because of anything like that. You know, it's, uh, obviously I, I didn't get to, I didn't experience it myself, but it's, uh, it's just so clear that, that that's, that's a major issue. And, uh, I, I, th- I think we could, if you have more, you want to share on that, or we could definitely keep talking about it. But uh, if you want to transition to, in the, talking about the Pacers for a little bit so that my editor doesn't completely kill me. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to, I'd love to talk about the Pacers for a little bit. Yeah, no, 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 no problem. Man. The only other thing I mentioned is the other thing about Brogdon said that after he left the private schools, which I eventually did after two years and went back to the city schools, he got, he had to deal with people, black people, which I did too, who now were mad at me because they thought I was trying to be white. Mm-hmm. Going to private school. And, uh, and so guess what happened there? I fought every day there too, but for different reasons. It was, they wanted to, you know, they didn't think I was one of them. Oh man, you, so I was living in a neighborhood. I wasn't going to school with any of them. I was going to a private school. Oh, you a little rich kid, which was kind of, which was a huge joke calling me rich. Yeah. <laughs> I'm bringing rich, but compared to them, I was kind of well to do. So it also creates something else on this other side. Like you almost have, nowhere to go because the white kids you didn't trust them for what they bought you through then when i went to the city school i hated all the black kids too (laughs) (laughs) it's funny i'm actually friends with a lot of them now it's just that you know we were like grade school age so you know kids are stupid you know oh yeah kids are very stupid and you know some of the guys who used to bully me who i ended up beating the living daylights of we're we're friends now um but it but but you gotta understand like going through that kind of stuff 
I think it's even especially tough for black children who are, um, who are like Brogdon, who were like me, because I was always, I always had a really good command of the English language. And, um, you know, I, uh, oh, like you're, it always was, I was, like I said, I was good in science and math. And so then you, so then you have this other side who have accepted the low expectations given to them by these teachers and by these white people in this little small town their whole lives. And now that you're exceeding that, now they see that as though you're against them. So it just caught it. So I'm, what I guess what I'm saying is all of this causes so, so many interconnected conflicts that it's just, it's hard, it's hard to kind of understand. It's not as simple as people think it is. And, um, um, and some of these people are, it, it's just, uh, they just, you know, I mean, I, I know, I know kids I've grown up with who still work at a Walmart, well, at the Walmart in town where they serve hot dogs. There's one girl I know, she's been doing it for 20, 20 years. And because that's what she thought all she could do. And she was the prettiest, she was voted the prettiest girl in school. She was my neighbor. Uh, she was voted, voted the prettiest girl in school every year we were in school together because she was kind of fair skinned really nice girl, real pretty girl. But, you know, she's serving hot dogs at Walmart because it's just, you know, and that's what I'm saying. Like they, the people, a lot of, a lot of people, not everybody, a lot of people I grew up with, they accepted their fate. And I just think um, as a result, all that, and I just never accepted, I never accepted, there are low expectations on that side for me. And I never expect, accept, accepted the low expectations that, that white people had for me in that town. And you know, you come a little, become a little bit of an outlier. And so, yeah, we go through all kinds of stuff. And again, you know, it, it's, it's just because, once again, I'll reiterate, just because you happen to be friends with somebody. I, one other story before we move on, we had a guy, I had a guy who used to give me rides when I was 16 years old at my first job at a Burger King in Falls Church, Virginia. Uh, his name was Clifford. I'll never forget. He used to hang out because he knew the manager. I would close every night. He would give me rides home because I live right up the street. So my sister didn't have to wake up and pick me up on a work night. One day we're sitting in the car and I look back. He has a bunch of guns, a gun, a gun rack. Mm. It turns out Clifford, um, not only was this huge Confederate dude, but he started telling me his philosophy of the world about how he thought Jews were all wimps. He says, well, it'll be the whites and the N-words. And he's like, yeah, it won't be the Jews because the Jews are all blah, da, 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 da. And I thought, like, this guy has to be joking, right? That was the first time, though, I ever encountered somebody. I said, hold up. Why would you give me rides home? Like, he offered me rides home. I never asked him. And he said, I like talking to you. So this was a guy who, if you asked him, he thought everybody was inferior to, to them. And, and he, by the way, he, he, was not a, he was a really scruffy, dirty-looking guy. Uh, and that's when I really understood what that Confederate symbol really meant. Um, and I couldn't understand because I was a child and I think, okay, well, he can't be a bad guy if he's giving me, offering me rides home. He's going out of his way. And he and I had an argument and I told him to go F himself. And I said that, uh, you know, said some things to him. I see him later on that week. He offered me a ride home again. I said, nah, Clifford, I will walk before I let you give me a ride home. And he was shocked. He was shocked. He said, man, I'm hurt. He said, I thought we were friends. He actually thought we were friends after saying that he said, well, he says, you're not, he basically told me you're not like the others, but the rest of these black people, they're blankety. So that's another perfect example of how 
are you, are people, are you going to tell me that guy because he was nice to me, he was friendly to me, he actually thought I was, I was okay, I was the one that was okay? You're going to tell me he wasn't a racist? Of course he was. <laughs> yeah. That was an early education to me at 16 years old, how a guy could be nice and friendly to me. But he thought everybody else who wasn't exactly like me was an N-word. And he admitted it. And the guy who's manager at my Burger King, he and I, that next day, the three of us were talking. And I told him, and that was the first time he said, I never heard Clifford talk that way. I said, Randy, he has a rebel flag on the back of his car. That should have probably been a giveaway, shouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Randy, Randy, who was a grown man, he was shocked by Clifford because Randy was like, Randy's Randy's girlfriend, I think, his ex-girlfriend was black. He's like, he says, so Clifford, you didn't like the fact that I was dating so-and-so? He's like, oh, hell no, it was disgusting. And I was like, Randy, how could you not know this? Like, you're a grown man. And then, so, but it goes to show you how a person like that can be right in your midst and be exactly the kind of racist you're talking about. So just because he was nice to me or you saw him giving me a ride, no, he hated people like me. And so that's how crazy in this kind of stuff is. And I, yeah. I don't think... I don't think people fully can grasp that's what we're talking about. Like, well, because so-and-so likes a black person or listens to a black artist or uh, his favorite basketball player is a black guy that somehow he can't be racist. Absolutely not true. Yeah. So we can do basketball. Yeah, definitely. Well, I just, sorry to, I got, I got one, one or one or two things off that real quick. Um, First of all, just because that's, you know, it's been a huge thing because obviously we mentioned Drew Brees earlier with the, that's that's why it's Black Lives Matter that 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 should be forefronted, not this All Lives Matter bullcrap. Because right now, all lives don't matter. It, it's not all on the same ballpark, um, and I just I can't reiterate that enough. Um, and I I, uh, I was working on a pro boxing career before I, I got back into school and uh, working on on my journalism degree. And so I was at Michigan State still um, when I when I was doing that, and. The difference between being on campus and in that area that's all upper middle class in, in Lansing and going into downtown Lansing where my gym was at is just stark. Like uh, you talked about gentrification in your, uh, in your hometown and that is just the prime example. I mean, I went from, I, I don't have like, I mean, Michigan state's a pretty diverse campus, but still, I mean, there were massive issues with, with, uh, with, with, with racism and, and divides and stuff. I was part of a fraternity, which was maybe the worst, <laughs> worst decision in my life. Um, I was from out of state, so I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, but I, like, like you spoke on when you, when you came out of, um, when you came out of Catholic school, obviously, obviously it's a little bit different, but I went to, from, you know, being at a gym that was, I was the only white kid there pretty much, you know, anytime I was there. Um, and finally starting to really understand what the world's like outside my own view. I think that uh, that's, that's all I can really leave with this. I think, uh, until you really get more of an outside perspective and, um, and try and understand where the people who are frustrated right now are coming from. And I just don't think you can, you know, and I, I hope that, um, that the people who continued to keep listening while, while you and I talked, uh, we'll, we'll get some good out of this because I, I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, I think we can definitely transition and talking Pacers now if, if you're good. Yeah, I'm good, man. I didn't know you were doing a boxing career. You know, I boxed for 20 years. Oh, really? No way. I, uh, so, I, uh, I I was probably only, shoot, like two and a half, three years. I was fighting at welterweight. Um, 
but I, I cut down to go to no. So I was fighting it. It's the amateur settings are weird. Uh, the, they really should just change up how it is. The boxing system in, in amateurs in, uh, in the U S is just weird. Um, but I, I think I was fighting at like one fifty one fifty two or something like that. And I cut down to one, one, like 45, 147. And I ended up having like a career ending injury. So I ended up getting out of it and getting back into school and everything. But yeah, yeah, no, I loved boxing. That was, that was my life for like probably three years straight, just all day, every day. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, I was, I actually have a picture I should post it. I have a picture of, uh, I was Jim Mason Manny Pacquiao when he first came to the U.S. No way. That's awesome. Manny thought I was a good fighter and wanted to take a picture with me. That's so uh, cool. Yeah, I used to train with Freddie Roach back in the – I used to be at his gym all the time. James Lysot Tony was one of my – spar with him before he fought with Silly Giraffe. Wow. 2003. So, yeah. So, when I talk about I'll beat the hell out of you, if you come up to me with that – Oh, you mean it. I mean it. I mean it. And it's like (laughs) people think because I'm shorter, you know, I'm under six feet tall, and I I don't – I'm not very – I don't raise my voice and that kind of stuff. And uh, that has always been kind of my trump card because I think being calm under pressure and having people, you know, flexing and threatening you and whatever is like, you have no idea what you're about to get yourself into. But, you know, uh, assuming that that the biggest thing I I learned growing up was, you know, there's guys you look at come in the gym and you assume, man, that guy, he can fight. I'm sure he's tough. He knows the softest little marshmallows. Oh, yeah, it's always the, the biggest dudes, the most ripped dudes, the guys who talk the most. They're never, never the ones. I remember I sparred this guy. He's probably like 6'3 or 6'4 and like 250, but like 4 or 5% body fat. And the softest puncher I think I've ever, ever encountered yeah. in my life. Yes. It's amazing how that happened. And you know what's funny too? Some of those guys that are ripped up like that can't take body shots. Oh, no way. It's no crazy. Way. It's it's just and one other thing we had a guy who showed up to the gym, uh, who was getting ready for his first uh, real amateur fight. Well, he had done some amateur fights, but a real big amateur tournament. He showed up, and I went outside to take a phone call or something, and his truck was outside, and he had a Confederate flag on. It. Mm. And I went back in the gym, and I says, "Can you believe his name was Tom? This idiot showed up to a gym, mostly black and Hispanic dudes with a rebel flag, and." And so we drew was one of us was going to work with him that day, and we drew straws on who got to beat his ass, and it was me. And I knocked him out with a left hook to the body, and it was one of those left hooks where I didn't even realize how hard I hit him, but he mm-hmm. was laying on the floor. His leg was tw- his leg was twitching because of the the, the shot I hit him with. It was paralyzing. And, <laughs> and afterwards, I told Tom, he's a nice guy. I said Tom. Uh, yeah, you probably shouldn't show up to the gym with that on anymore because you, you're going to get ass with us like this every day. So just saying, just drive another – if it's somebody else's car, drive another car, catch a cab, walk, uh, whatever, run here. Don't show up with that because you're going to catch hell, man. <laughs> Definitely not. I think that's uh, the – yeah, before we move in, that's the – yeah. To, if, if, to anybody who's never, uh, never been in, in a boxing gym, uh, it is a whole other experience, man. It is uh, just – it's very different. Um, but so transitioning to the Pacers, uh, obviously um, basketball coming back July 31st, we got that down um, with 22 teams. Uh, you know, Tom and I reported on that a little uh, – I believe two days ago. It already feels like a, a month ago. Um, I just want to jump in right away and kind of see um, what are your thoughts initially on – the whole NBA front, you know, how this is, uh, how this is shaping up and, 
um, we can we can kind of dive you know a little bit more focused on the Pacers after that. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. Um, I think because I just don't know how it's going to shake out. Um, number one, are we going to have? If there's any more uh, outbreaks, um, does that change anything? I would imagine it would. Um, significant. And let's face it. Like, what if a bunch of key players end up contracting a virus and can't compete? It kind of loses the validity of the whole idea of the tournament, doesn't it? Mm. Right? Or the playoffs that they're going to have. Being without, being without fans. Like, I think that – and there's no real home court advantage. And that's going to change the outcomes of a lot of matchups that we would think would be different. So, I don't know. I, I mean, I could totally see a team at the bottom or towards the bottom beating a team at the top just because I think some people, some teams, some some – they get up, they get off on that, 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 that energy, that vibe, that feeling that people are watching. I think there's some people who actually shrink in those moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would rather, they would play better if less people were there. And there are people who would do the opposite. So I think that variable makes it kind of difficult to figure out. I think what we traditionally see, how we traditionally see matchups should change because of that. And we're not going to know exactly who those teams are going to be until they get on the court and we see how they perform. Um, but look, I think, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm glad it's coming back in a way, but not because I need the distraction. I mean, I like to be able to get closure to the season. I'm just not sure. Um, how do we, how do we look at the champion this year? I guess, you know? Yeah. That's something I'm worried about personally, because, uh, I, I, you know, I saw, I don't remember who said it, but somebody said something about how, you know, there's, there's an asterisk every year in some way. I'm like, you know, this is different. This isn't a lockout season. This isn't, um, there, there's not like just some overarching storyline that's different. The entire season is completely restructured. And I'm, sometimes I'm a little bit too pessimistic with things, but I, uh, I genuinely just think that regardless, this is always going to be viewed as a, as a different season. And I, uh, I, I was personally on the forefront that they should just um, kind of either a have a very, very condensed playoffs with maybe like eight or 10 teams um, or just cancel it outright and try and push back for a better season next year. Cause I'm genuinely worried about, uh, about a potential COVID outbreak at, uh, at Orlando. And I'm sure somebody sitting at home is like, well, you're worrying for no reason. And I'll say automatically the amount of players that had it that we didn't realize until it was already, you know, the season was already canceled. I mean, I just think the potential for things to go wrong is so much higher than for, uh, for, for things to go completely right. Um, yeah. I'm genuinely worried about injuries as well. I mean, I, I don't have, I've I spent a lot of time trying to look for, for the injury report data, but that's only become like really um, viable from the NBA in like the last 10 years. But uh, the, the lockout in 1999, from what I remember, um, or at least from what I've, I know from, from, from looking back, um, the the injury rate was way higher. I mean, I know some teams got thrown under the bus in the 99 season because of injuries. Um, so I, I think, and this has potential to be maybe even more dangerous than a lockout season because there's going to be back-to-backs um, and it's going to be, it's, it's not having a, a cool down uh, off of a, off of an off season. Uh, it, we went from being right in the middle of a season, right in the thick of a playoff race to off, uncertainty of what's going to happen and now we're going all I mean obviously we have the regular season games but it's only it's it's eight games and then we're going right into a playoff setting uh so I don't know I'm worried about that as well yeah it's uh yeah it is different because of that the start and then the stop and 
you know, who, who's going to come back? Yeah, the lockout season, everybody started at the same time. They all, yeah, you're right. They all came from a stop and they started and they went all the way through. Mm-hmm. And that's not the same as this. Um, you know, it's, it's not just the, the start and the stop. It's, the, you know, like, who, who's going to come back in top shape and who won't? Like, there's going to be somebody who's going to come back and not be themselves again, a good player. I don't know who it's going to be. Yeah. That's going to change everything. Could it be LeBron? Could it be, you know, could it be Harden? It's going to change everything. Um, and, yeah, I, I, this is just a weird um, – so, yeah, so when, when I'm asked, like, well, well, you know, the Pacers, can they beat the – they end up playing the Heat. Can, I, I, don't, I don't know. If you ask me when the season stopped, if, if, if they were in those same positions and they went into the postseason without this interruption, I would have picked the Pacers actually to beat the Heat because I thought the Pacers were trending upward and the Heat were kind of starting to come down. They already peaked. And to me, the Pacers were doing something – this season to the previous season, which was they were peaking at the right time. It's as much about peaking at the right time going into the playoffs as it is about your overall record. You know, I, I always say, hey, Brooklyn last season was not a better team than the Pacers on paper. They finished six games behind. They were, what, the number, what, seven seed or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but they were a better team at the end of the year last year. If you didn't need ev- you needed evidence, you see what happened when the Pacers played Brooklyn at the end of the season last year. They got ripped. And then Brooklyn went into the playoffs, actually were competitive with Philadelphia. I think it was Philadelphia, won a game. They didn't get out of the first round either, but Brooklyn looked better. They looked, they were more competitive. Uh, And so that's what I mean by peaking at the right time. You can have a better record, but not peaking. And that's what I thought the Pacers were doing better than Miami. Now, if you ask me that question, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's that's what's so confusing me because, uh, I mean, just looking at it, like – I think momentum sometimes get, gets discounted and, uh, and people talk about, uh, well, I mean like the records and, and net rating. I, I'm obviously, I'm a proponent of advanced stats, anything to help see the game. But I mean, this is just, it, it, I almost view it. It's almost like in a completely different season. Yes. You have the same rosters, but I mean, these guys haven't been together for three months. You know, they haven't been playing games together, practicing together for three months. Guys have been going in for individual workouts, but I mean, it's just, it's so, so different. Um, but I mean, I, I guess just kind of, uh, transitioning into, into the Pacers. Uh, I agree with you. I was, uh, I was definitely optimistic about a heat series. Um, I know some people were really excited about the potential of playing Boston and I was not excited about that at all. Um, especially after the last game. Um, I think that there's just kind of a notion that, uh, we can kill them on the inside. And I think people underrate how good of a defender Daniel Tice is. Um, but also just how hard it is to, to guard, um, to guard all their wings, especially with the cross matches that we have at the four. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think right now it's shaping up that we'll probably end up against the heat. I, I, I don't have like the projections or anything right in front of me, but I know that there's a, it's more likely than not that we probably end up playing the heat again in the playoffs, just the way that the records and everything might fall out depending how yeah. things work. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, what, what like going into the regular season, I guess if we're going to call it that. Um, what are you kind of most looking for uh, for this team to do? Um, well, I'm looking to see if you know the biggest thing to me is defensively. Do they have the same sort of um, the same sort of posture? I thought they kind of they started to play better defensively. Uh, mix a lot of things up, change some concepts. Uh, is is the timing? Is the 
going to still be there. I now I know one thing that they were um, going to be installing some more wrinkles to the defensive strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious to kind of see what other, what, what other things they do. I mean, now the coaching staff has had nothing but a bunch of downtime to, to think about two things. Uh, how do you implement them? Or does this whole thing mean that you can't do it? I don't know. I think, I think what's worked well for them is, you know, I was talking to um, uh, Nick Nurse, the coach of Toronto, about uh, I think we're at a practice. And I brought up how, you know, the Pacers were changing. Hey, did you see that they were doing this versus, you know, I can't even remember. I think I was talking about hard hedging, something that you don't know see a lot of teams doing with their bigs anymore. And he's like, yeah. He's like, they're mixing stuff up because – He's like, you know, teams are mixing so much stuff up offensively. You have to just try different things defensively. He's like, I never thought I would see the Pacers do those sorts of things. <laughs> I never thought I would see them get into a zone because they've always been it's, – it's even pre-Nate that, that, that you do things your way, the Pacers' way, and you try to do your best to, you know, force that square thing into that round hole no matter what. And that's what they do. And he says for them to get away from that and to start kind of pushing the envelope and doing other things – he said, actually, yeah, he said it kind of catches you off guard and you need some time to, you know, gather, you, you figure out what to do. And so the fact that they were doing these sorts of things and at least being more creative on that side, um, I thought they were kind of in a rhythm with that. And so I'm curious to see exactly, do they come back using that same sort of stuff and what do they add? Um, because, I mean, that, that's what I mean about this little stretch of games that they're going to have coming up, uh, the eight games, and then when you get into the playoffs – you know, there's not going to be a lot of time for teams because the, all of these games are going to be compressed and to adjust to all of these things that you may be doing and these new looks and these new wrinkles. Um, so I'm, I'm just kind of curious to see what they look like there. And does Sabonis and Turner continue to play together as well as they play kind of going towards the stoppage? Um, that was the best basketball we saw Miles Turner play all season. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think for him that was the – with him doing that, I think that's what kind of helped them get to that next level. And so, you know, I, I'm just curious, does, is he, is he October miles or is he going to be March miles? And if he's March miles, okay, obviously things are good. If he's October miles, this might be rough. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think just going off that, that's uh, cause this postseason was going to be huge. You know, I mean, I think that this, there was a lot riding for the Pacers on this season um, in the playoffs because you know, finally get to see this core together, finally get to see Sabonis and Turner playing in the front court in the postseason uh, at the same time. Um, and I, for the people who are not proponents of Nate, it was huge for them because they'd be, you know, violent about Twitter on it. Um, but, you know, I think that it's just hard to kind of quantify what do you even draw from this as an organization? Like how, uh, if say Miles and, and, and Sabonis don't play well, well together, can you even equate that to, to, to meaning something, you know, because of, of, of the way that uh, this season has gone. Uh, so I don't know. I just think there's, there's even more questions than answers for sure. Yeah. I think you can use the data or the results to support whatever you do. If they don't play well and you want to fire somebody, you got an excuse, right? Yeah. If they don't play well, but you don't really want to fire somebody. You say, well, you know, look at a situation and circumstances. We're not going to make a move as a result of that. That would be unfair. So, I mean, you can kind of make it work for you however you want, I guess. Um, I think going forward, I mean, look, if, you, if you're looking at going forward with with the roster, like we start looking to offseason, which isn't going to be – the offseason is going to be crazy because everything's going to be compressed so much. Oh, yeah. 
uh, you know, they're going to, you know, you have some roster decisions to make. Free agency is going to change. Um, I mean, we got to know what a salary cap is going to be set, number one. Um, I was told that they're going to, whatever the hit is going to be to the cap, that they won't take it. Uh, they don't think they'll take it all this upcoming year. They'll do a smoothing process where they'll spread out the hit over multiple years. So maybe the cap only goes down 5 to 7% rather than drop 15 to 20% all at once, um, which would make it a little bit easier, I guess, for a lot of teams, for some teams. But regardless, the revenues are going to go down. There's going to be guys who are going to be available in the market who otherwise wouldn't be available. Because some of these teams are going to have to shed salary. Um, they don't want to pay that repeater tax. And quite frankly, ownership – you know, who have other outside businesses that have suffered, they're leveraged. Um, so you're going to see team ownership groups change in composition. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've talked to a couple of people around the league when it comes to players. This is, there's going to be some players that hit the market that are going to be available that we didn't think were going to be available. And, and so it's kind of hard to peg who those guys are going to be. Um, but I think it's going to, it's going to be contingent on once we see what those clap projections are going to be. Um, there's going to be a lot of stuff that changes. So I think even going forward, no matter what happens here and however you judge this season, um, you know, maybe you end up, you know, maybe you end up getting a guy or two who otherwise would never have been on the market because another team doesn't want to pay its salary, his salary or can't afford to pay a salary. Does that help the Pacers at all? Because as we know, the Pacers generally don't, you know, break the cap or bust the luxury. They won't go into the tax. Um, I mean, I don't know, but I do think this, like, you know, in order for the Pacers to be a championship team, they need one more star. Um, and I think, you know, that that's the as, – as well as you can coach and, and, and rearrange these pieces and it can be a good team, it can be a team that gets to the conference finals even, given the right circumstances, I think to be a championship team, they got to get that one star, another star guy, or uh, knock it out of the park and get another Paul George in a draft or something to that effect, which, you know, picking where they're going to be picking – and the quality of these drafts coming up, I, I just don't see that being possible. But uh, so there's going to be some opportunities, I think, more opportunities than we thought this offseason, going into this offseason, just because of the financial constraints that some of these ownership groups have. Yeah, yeah, and I, I totally agree. I've been uh, definitely on that track as well. I think, uh, obviously, I mean, making a move like getting TJ Warren, that's been huge. Um, he's been phenomenal. But I, I agree, there has to be another guy. We've seen, um, obviously, Victor was gone uh, most of the year. Um, but against the, you know, top four teams in each each side of the conference, this team has not fared well. Um, and maybe that's different with Victor. Uh, but e- even from, from what we've seen and what we've seen in, in years prior, there's just, there's, there's got to be a little bit more. Maybe that comes from, from inside somehow. Um, but, yeah, there definitely has to be uh, – something that goes kind of when push comes to shove. I agree. And maybe, this, and maybe this is where you make, you know, you make a really aggressive move in the off season. You know, everybody talks about trade and Turner. Would you trade some bonus? Yeah. See, that's, it's tough. I think, um, I don't, I don't know how you feel about the situation. I think that a lot of people underrate miles just because of, uh, the box score. Um, I think, yeah, his, his defensive impact is huge. Um, but then also, I mean, Domas does so much as well. But then, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just – it really just depends where um, where management decides they want to take the team. You know, I think, uh, it, 
you know, I, I've talked to a couple people um, who are, you know, a lot better with X's and O's and, and team strategy and stuff than I am currently um, about, you know, what it would be like trying to build a, a defense with Domas at the five or how you um, factor in having uh, a different four next to miles, because just by my assessment, I don't think, I mean, as good as TJ is, I don't think he could slide up to the four super easily and not as a starter, in my opinion, just, he's not a great rebounder. Um, miles is already not a great rebounder himself. So having two, you know, two kind of negative rebounders for their position at the, uh, in the front court makes it really difficult. Um, and I, I don't know. I just think that, uh, it's it's tough because what what ends up being better, uh, Domas at his peak or Miles at his peak? Um, because I mean we haven't really seen either of them yet. I mean I think Domas. I mean he just turned twenty four. He's still got a lot of potential to grow. Um, and Miles, you know we haven't gotten to see him maximized. I think he uh, he gets crapped on a lot for his uh, you know some people would say non assertiveness, which you know maybe sometimes that's fair. Uh, but at the same time, I mean he he went from being Gosh, his his rookie year and his second year, I mean not his rookie year, his second year, uh, he was like you know the second or third guy on the offense, and now he's fifth or sixth sometimes. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I don't I don't have a definitive answer for you on that one. Me either. I don't have a definitive answer. Yeah, I, I just say it depends on what your team's going to look like going forward. Um, I think it's probably easier to go if you were to move Sabonis, only because. You, you you can be you may be able to compensate for some of what he does with you know there's there's a lot of guys there's not a lot of guys who can do what he does all the all the things he does in one but I think you can compensate for the rebounding if you get obviously a guy who can rebound yeah. uh, a guy who can uh, you know look the, the whole league you know we've gone away from so many the whole idea of posting up but he's really good at posting up obviously that's the strength of his game um, uh, Turner because he can spread, I just think it might be easier to construct an offense with him because of his ability to spread the floor. If, but, but if you don't have people around Turner who can break that man out off the dribble, I mean, kind of minimizes his ability to spread the floor of nobody. <laughs> if he can spread the floor and the lane is wide open and then he reverses the ball for somebody to break that man out off the dribble because you pull people away from him and he can't break the man out off the dribble, what does it matter? Like, it's – yeah, it just kind of depends on what kind of team you want. Um, playing faster. I mean, I think everybody wants the Pacers to play faster. They're better when they play faster. Um, it, it, that's the one thing. If I looked at, you know, the things that they haven't done, I, I, I wondered, and I've asked Nate this, and what took so long, I'd have put Jakar Sampson in the rotation again a long time ago because I think that putting him with T.J. McConnell is, is, works for both of them. And you want to play faster – those are the guys that you need to have in and, and, and stop, um, you know, and, and not use Justin Holiday at the four as much defensively because he's, you know, they've lost a couple of games because he's been at the four defensively and they've isolated him and gone out. Great. And he's an excellent defender. It's just that he's undersized going against some of these bigger fours. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I wrote a piece. Uh, I wrote a piece last week about before the playoff format was determined, you know, there was talk about um, just reseeding all 16 teams. And uh, I wrote an article about uh, what a you know matchup with the Nuggets would look like because that was who we would be slotted up against. And um, you know I, I pulled a couple clips of, uh, of of Justin trying to defend Michael Porter Jr. And that was I mean he played textbook defense on him, but it just didn't matter. I mean at some point height and athleticism just makes a difference. And I yeah. agree. I think Jakar should have been in the 
uh, rotation a lot more this year. Um, that's one thing I've looked at as well. I mean, with free agency, uh, first of all, we haven't even talked about free agency. I mean, that's, uh, it's, it's happening four days after the potential end date of the finals, which is just mind boggling to me to even think about. Um, I mean, I, I think the idea of, uh, getting somebody in here who's kind of like a three, four, um, maybe they can play small ball five, but th- there needs to be some more lineup versatility because I think, um, you know, obviously there's been kind of an unwillingness to, uh, to play Jakar as much. And I mean, he has his shortcomings on offense. Um, but having a guy who can, who can, who can slot in and provide lineup versatility. I mean, obviously it, de- it depends if it's still Domas and, and miles, but I think having that guy who can, who can play the four more credibly off the bench would, would be a huge plus. Yeah. 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 And it's, I mean, I go back to that, that game against Philly, the one time the Pacers lost, we were in Philadelphia. They had that game one. The game was lost because the Pacers are dominating most of the game. What does Philly do? What does Philly do? They go to Tobias Harris isolating in the post against Justin Holliday. And he got like, I, I want to say three baskets in a row during one stretch when they basically chiseled away the lead and it was just, uh, they, you know, they reversed the ball, got it to him. He either would, he, if he wasn't already posted up, you know, he'd dribble down, get into post up, low post up position. No help will come. It would be Justin one-on-one. And Justin, again, yeah, he did the job. He defensively didn't do anything wrong. But Harris was just too strong for him. And so it's, ga- it's games like that when I look at them losing. It's like, man, they could have got – it's probably about three games that they would win, would have on the win column if they would have adjusted to that alone. Uh, and, and by the way, it's, it's, I'm doing this with the Pacers and I'm doing this with Nate, but I th- you can do this with every team. Uh, I think what, what, what fans of teams get kind of locked into is that they're so obsessed about their team and they think this is only their team that goes through this. There are other, other teams, trust me, lose games because even coaches like Popovich, yeah, you could have made this adjustment quicker. And they're, they're, you know, and, you know, sometimes it, it just happens that way. I think every team can look at a schedule and say, you know, whatever our record is, we should have had three or four or five more wins. And I think when I look at that with Justin Holiday, I think that's probably worth about three wins to the Pacers right now. They had gone to Samson quicker. Um, but offensively, you know, Justin Holiday has been better than I even imagined. I mean, oh, I don't yeah, know about you. Uh, no, no, I totally it's, agree. It's, it's insane. And unfortunately for him, He's having his best season of his career at 31, going into a year where he's going to be a free agent where the salary cap's going down. So he can still get money from the Pacers, but it's going to limit his ability to get money and offers from 29 other teams because, you know, some of them are going to be cash strapped. So it's going to kind of shrink the number of teams that might be interested in giving him that kind of salary spike I think he deserves. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. I've talked about that one with uh, Jeff Siegel of Early Bird Rights on uh, the um, – the deal he might get. And yeah, it's uh he's definitely a little bit hamstringed by it, which, which kind of sucks for him, but uh, it might work out for the Pacers because maybe it takes like a one year or something. I don't know. Uh, it's so much stuff in the air with it, but yeah, his, uh his ability, uh, but I mean, he was largely like a standstill uh, three point shooter most of his career. And this year he's just uh, totally blossomed to an, an off screen guy. And uh, yeah. done well t- taking it to the rim. Uh, I mean, yeah, he was. I was excited when we signed him last year, but uh, to the level that he's played, I, I totally, totally wasn't expecting it. Yeah, he's just like you know. You want to talk about a guy that outplayed his deal? Like he's one of the 
Like he's one of probably, you know, if you did a list of the five guys in the league this year that outplayed their contract, he's, if he's not number one, I want to know who is because what he's done on both sides of the ball, um, you know, despite the troubles he has defending fours, when he's defending his own position, he does pretty well on that regard too. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, and by the way, I'm told that he wants a multi-year deal. He's not looking for another one-year deal. Um, so we'll see, like, but the problem is, of course, with him wanting a multi-year deal, you know, if there's not another team out there willing to give him one because there's less teams because of the salary cap going down and it kind of reduces the leverage he has with the Pacers. But if he's able to get a multi-year deal from somewhere, um, you know, long as it's not, uh, long as it's not the Chicago Bulls who he's, I mean, maybe because the Chicago Bulls have changed management, excuse me, he would be more amenable to it, but he didn't want to go back. He ought, the two teams he's going to go to, of course, was Chicago or the Pacers this past offseason. He chose the Pacers and took less money because he didn't want to deal with the circus. That's the Chicago Bulls. Uh, Maybe because they've gotten their house in order. If they came back to him, maybe he would be more amenable to it if they were willing to offer him that same deal again. But I think um, the pay, I I think the Pacers, if they can find, if Kevin Pritchard can find any way to, once you crunch the math of of rewarding that guy, uh, because he's, he really deserves, he deserves it from somewhere. I hope he gets as much money and as long as a deal, he can possible uh, because he's earned it. Uh, but yeah, he wants, he, he doesn't want to play on another one year deal. And I, I can't blame him. Yeah, no, I fully agree. Cause I think, uh, I mean, he hasn't had a single multi-year deal that he's been in the NBA. Has he? No, no. no. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't think he had because he, uh, he was on golden state when he, I believe he signed a two way with golden state when he first came out. Cause he didn't get drafted. He, he, he did not get drafted. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he didn't get drafted, and then he went to he went to Hungary for a year, I think, right after that, after Golden State, because he wasn't active for that championship year in the playoffs for Golden State, because mm-hmm. um, that first that was what fifteen, the first championship year, wasn't yeah, it, with Steph. yeah, I think so, it was fifteen. Yeah, so yeah, and so he's yeah he's never had any long term security, so you know he's thirty one years old, he's kind of at that age where you know your career is probably going to start to go into downturn, so you want to stop doing one year deals if you can. Um, you know, uh, you know, Jakar Sampson thought he was going to, thought he was putting himself in position to get a decent deal. Um, uh, you know, they thought he was going to be getting about, you know, maybe a $5 million deal coming off of the way he's played for them this year. Now that's probably not expected to happen. He may be looking at another one year minimum contract as well. Um, so it's kind of hard to figure out how some of this stuff is going to, how some of this stuff is going to shake out, um, it ha- I mean, you know, I, I guess one could argue Holiday was willing to sign a multi-year deal with the Pacers before this season. And, you know, you could argue now, if you'd have just done that then, you wouldn't have to deal with this problem now. But yeah. who knew that he was going to play this well? Yeah, so. no, nobody. I don't, I, I don't know anybody who had any kind of inclination like that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of wild. Uh, man, so, like, when just when you look at uh, – how this season and off season might play out. Uh, what do you see as uh, what's I maybe not ideal is the wrong word. Cause what's ideal is probably not going to happen. Um, but what is uh, like it, what's like a, a good scenario, you know, like if uh, what, what do the Pacers do in this regular season postseason that, uh, that would be seen as a plus heading into next year for you? Oh, what they do is a plus. Um, I mean, Shoot, they do as a plus. I mean, look, they've always said get out of the first round, right? I would say, that, I would say, if they get 
what would make them look really good if they will we'll obviously improve their chances if they get far if they get deep like say to the conference finals i think that would be and i think i believe it i think it's possible i mean oh yeah I in agree. the regular in the regular traditional setting that we had before this virus hit i would say getting out of the first round is about it which would have been good which would have been a which, when you think about it, all the new pieces they have, that would have been a huge accomplishment, um, especially after coming off getting swept the previous year. Uh, I think now, actually, you know, it's reasonable to expect that, you know, they could win a couple of rounds uh, and could put them in good position uh, going into the open market where they can then get that other player that, you know, because, uh, you know, that's the pitch that you make. Hey, we were in the conference finals last year. Forget that it was a truncated season and all this craziness took place because of coronavirus. And to me, that's like, because that, that's pretty much what you got to do uh, in order to, aside from being able to offer somebody more money than anyone else, you got to offer them a chance to win and win big. And the other thing is to keep Victor Oladipo wanting to stay uh, long-term, which the Pacers want. They want to keep him, obviously. Um a huge component for Victor is winning. So uh, just getting to the first round or just getting out of the first round, I think now, regardless of all this, uh, the, the, the lockdown that we're coming out of, that they need to show a significant step in progress, not just for potential guys who they want to get, but to keep the guys that they want to keep with Old Depot being chief among them. Um, you know, Every indication is that they're gonna, the marriage is gonna remain um, when he comes up after he, he becomes a free agent next year because he wants to get the most money possible. Uh, but um, it can make it a lot less stressful situation um, going forward. So I, I think it's time for them to shoot to, to to think big, to think bigger and go beyond. Let's just get out of the first round because this is where I think you can catch some of these teams. By surprise, by surprise in the playoffs. Hell, maybe you could match up with Milwaukee in the second round and you upset him. I mean, it's, you know, look, obviously the season, the way the season has gone would have an impact on that, but you know what? So what? It counts. So use it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would agree because, uh, yeah, the Simons do not typically uh, decide that they want to pay the salary tax. So I think uh, winning more than one round this year would be instrumental in making that next step because this team's totally at a, I mean, we've hit it on it already, but yeah, this team's just at a, it's at a point where you can either go down or you can go up. Um, it's not really a point where the, I think anybody's going to be comfortable staying at a, at a first round out or a second round, uh, a second round lock. So yeah, I totally agree, man. Um, before, before we get you out of here, what are you, uh, what are you working on right now? Anything, uh, anything exciting you got to plug? Well, uh, I just finished doing the 20th anniversary piece. That's going to go out. It actually just posted today. I think it'll be in, in print on the weekend or Sunday, but it just went up on the web today. Um, I've been working on the 20th anniversary of the NBA Finals. Mm-hmm. Um, so that actually just went up. I mean, obviously, I just did my Brogdon piece yesterday. Um, well, I just finished it yesterday on him. And uh, I'm about to take a break. What are you talking about, man? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I'm just writing up something quick about uh, – or not quick, concise is the better way to put it. Quick, quick's got a bad connotation sometimes. But uh, I'm just writing up some thoughts on uh, on how the next 18 months are uh, are really pivotal for the NBA, um, and uh, probably gonna try and start doing some film breakdown on uh, on on uh, some of the series that we could see play out, and watch, just probably watching some old games to remember what this team looks like when they play sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. 
But yeah, I mean, uh, I'll just keep doing this, keep trying to spread the word on what's going on outside right now. And, but uh, mainly, I think my big thing is just thanks to thanks Tom for coming on, Jay. I really appreciate it, man. It was, a, it was awesome talking with you. Uh, yeah, probably definitely. one of the most important conversations I've had, and I, I really hope people get a lot out of it. And if they don't, well, they uh, they're probably the ones who need to get more out of it. So, um, yeah, I'm not. I'm gonna tell you what. I, I don't let let people be clear. I, I don't argue with idiots. If you're willfully ignorant, I'm not gonna debate with you. And there's certain things that aren't worth debating. And I will, though. You know. I'm I'm very fair. I understand. I'm I'm very fair with people because I understand. You know, I, I had this experience when I was at USA Today. I had this editor who I work with. He's from Arkansas, and he came up to me, and he said to me, "He said I had a boss at the time, and she was like the worst boss in the history of the universe." And, mm-hmm. and he said, "You know what?" She came up to me and asked me, "What were you doing today?" And he's like, "You were standing right there." And she wouldn't ask. He said, he's right there. Go ask him. What are you asking me? What he's doing? I'm not his boss. Like, he and I were equals. And he said, um, she's afraid to talk to you. It's like she's terrified of you. And he's like, they all are. And, and so he and I ended up having lunch that day. And he was like, you know, it really pisses me off. And he's like, he said, look, man. He says, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a white dude from Arkansas. He says, uh, he told me, he said, um, he says, look. I haven't always been the most evolved person in the world. He's like, you know, where I grew up in Arkansas, the N-word was common. I used it growing up because I thought it was normal. And he, I was kind of shocked that he admitted that to me. <laughs> but it was like, okay. And he and, I, and I actually, he actually ended up dying of brain cancer. He was a really nice guy. Wow. Uh, really, really just a really good dude. But like he was just being honest with me. I, I didn't shut him off because he admitted to me he did something back then that was reprehensible. He explained like, look, you know, that's how we grew up. That's how we were taught. Everybody in my household, that's what they did. You know, it was like saying good morning. And he's like, I realized that was bullshit. And, you know, and he's, you know, so he told me about his evolution and stuff. So he, he was like, you know, he wasn't apologizing. I wasn't expecting him to apologize to me, all the bad stuff he done. But he's like, look, he was like, I'm more comfortable. He's like, you know, you're my brother. He's like, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a spiritual way. He's like, he's like, so I don't, you know, that's the kind of dude he was. So he and I would yeah. joke about being brothers all the time. But this other lady who had trouble dealing with me, um, the guy I'm talking about was probably a little bit more conservative, a little bit more religious, but not overly so guy. The person we were talking about was this uh, really left wing. uh, And I I hate to make this between right and left. I'm I'm not really doing this, but my whole point was she was this really, you know, liberal. um, uh, She, she, if you asked her, she was the most fair person and she was the most decent person who ever lived. And she would look down on anybody who wasn't as woke as she was. But she did not, she was afraid of me. It, it, it goes against convention. You would think he would have more issues dealing with me than she would. She had issues dealing with me. And, and it was funny because, you know, when I look at that, that video of that woman in Central Park calling the, trying to call the police on that man, saying he was going to threaten her and all that stuff, she kind of had a similar profile to this woman I'm talking about who's my boss who's afraid of me. And... Weird. Like some people think because, well, I'm this, I'm, 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 I'm Christian or because I'm, I'm, I'm a Democrat or because 
I'm, I'm a Republican or because I'm the, that I can't possibly be. You got to get rid of the labels. I don't care about any of that. It's how you act towards me. And this woman treated me like I was like going to rape her. I swear to you who I work with. And she was, like I said, and the guy who you thought came from the background who would have difficulty with me, he and I were, were, were real tight. And there, there's no, there's no formula for it. Like, there are people, people to me have a very, so when I say to people who might have an issue with it, it's like, this woman who I'm referring to, she probably viewed herself as the most fair and most non-racist person there is. And it's just not true. Was she, I don't not do I know if she was a racist? No, but I do know she had problems dealing with me. And I, I joke to somebody, I say, look at her. She only hangs out at the office. She only hangs out with other white women like her. Those are her friends. That's her circle. So it was almost like when she, she felt like she was talking, she had to talk a different language. Like she had to speak jive to me or something to relate. She was afraid to talk. She was literally, she was my boss. Yeah. I would, go, I would go months without having conversations with her. Think about it. Your boss wow. who didn't, she would not talk to me. So that's what I'm saying. Like, so just because you feel like you fit this certain paradigm, well, that means I can't be racist or whatever, or I don't have any sort of inherent pro this woman had issues and I talked to other people that they said, you know what, she has difficulty. She's actually okay talking to other non-white women. She has an issue or it seems she has a, a blockage talking to black men in particular or relating to. It's almost like she's intimidated. And I, you could see it. So so that's what I'm saying. Like there's no rhyme or reason to it. So those are little things that nobody else in the office probably picks up on that obviously from my experience, I would pick up on. So don't tell me you've never seen a, a, a racist person or a person engage in prejudicial behavior. I don't know what that is. That's because your eyes aren't open. This guy, Don, this redneck from Arkansas, his eyes were open enough that he saw. And so again, somebody like that can be more of an ally to you than somebody like the lady I was referring to. It's weird how that works, but that, that's how it is. And I think that's the whole purpose of the conversations. Like we get in this country too caught up into labels. I know some people who you would consider left-leaning who are terrible people who I wouldn't let walk my dog. And I know some people who you would consider more conservative or right-leaning who are decent people who I would trust. But you know what? There's also a lot of people on that side who I would not, in, yeah, I would absolutely not trust. They're terrible yeah. people. But they're, yeah. not, but they're not terrible. They're not terrible people because of the label, and they're not good people because of the label. It's because of who you are. Period. You could you could tell you you could tell me you're a Christian. You could tell me you're a devout Muslim. You could tell me you're a devout Jew. You could tell me you're a Democrat or Republican or you're conservative or you're liberal. I don't care. What matters is how do you behave and how do you treat people. Period. End of paragraph. And if you treat me like crap, none of those labels matter to me. I like when people say, well, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a Christian. I don't care. How does he treat people? Especially when no one is looking, how do you treat people? That, that's actually who you are. Those labels, no matter what you use, are not who you are. So I, would, I'm a, I think I'm a fair person in that I don't assume that you're a bad guy because you, uh, you're this religion or you have this political stripe or that political stripe. I want to hear you talk and see how you behave and how you act. That's going to tell me who you are, not those labels. 
Well, uh, Jay, thanks again, man. I really, uh, I really appreciate having you on and, and, and talking with you and get to know you a little bit. Um, to everybody listening, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, stay safe out there. Uh, have a good rest of your day and just try and be a better human today.